Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and host of Unmasking a Murderer, a podcast about the psychology of true crime. Today's episode, episode four, aired on YouTube on June 4th of 2020, and it's part four of the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell series. It was an update after Lori Vallow's attorney questioned Lori's mental state and asked for psychological evaluation on, on her client and asked for a psychological evaluation on its client to determine if she was competent to stand trial. The psychologist who evaluated her said she is too mentally ill to participate in her own defense. Now, interestingly, initially, the prosecution said he would challenge this expert's opinion, but he withdrew it a few days after this show aired, and she has now been formally committed to treatment. Let's take a look in this episode at what all this might mean from a legal as well as a psychological standpoint. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Joni Johnson. Welcome back to Unmasking a Murderer. I want to thank all of my true crime fans who took the time to write in and ask me to provide an update on the Lori and Chad Daybell case, not only in terms of some of the recent legal charges that have been handed down, but really more importantly, from my perspective as a forensic psychologist, the potential mental health issues in this case. Now, I covered this case on July 14th of last year. We talked about the basic facts in this case, and we looked at some of the mental health issues then, particularly in terms of a potential insanity defense. She has expressed some unusual religious beliefs, as I'm sure all of you who are familiar with the case know. And we were talking about whether that could potentially set the stage for an insanity defense at that time. And we also talked about the fact that Idaho is one of only four states in the U.S. that abolished the insanity plea. So in this case, that is off the table for Lori Vallow Daybell. Um, Now, mental health issues can be used um, as a mitigator in sentencing. So her defense attorney could argue that she was so impaired psychologically that she shouldn't be put to death. She should get a lighter sentence, but that's obviously way down the road. So I'm going to spend most of the time today talking not so much about the facts of the case, but the recent charges. And then again, I'm going to focus more on this new legal development, which kind of has everybody in a tizzy. So recently, Lori and Triad Daybell were handed down nine felony counts from a grand jury in Idaho. And these include charges like first degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, grand theft by deception. Um, And that really boils down to Lori continued to collect social security survivor benefits for several months after her kids went missing. Chad has been charged with insurance fraud for collecting about $430,000 in insurance money after his wife, his then wife, Tammy died, which by the way, we've discovered that he upped her insurance to the max about a month before she died. So Lori and Chad have been charged with conspiracy to commit murder of her children, seven-year-old J.J. Fallow and 16-year-old Tylee Ryan. Chad Daybell has been charged with the murder of his then-wife, Tammy Daybell. Lori has been charged with conspiracy to commit murder in that case. And also, around the same time period, the Chandler, Arizona police Um, confirmed that it submitted a charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder against Lori Vallow-Daybell in the July 2019 death of her then-husband, Charles Vallow. You might remember that Lori's brother, Alex Cox, who is also now deceased, 
called the police and claimed that he shot and killed Charles in self-defense after the two of them had gotten into an argument. And he claimed that Charles had hit him in the head with the baseball bat and he was defending his life and took out a gun and shot and killed Charles. So there's a lot of suspicious circumstances leading up to this death and a lot of unanswered questions um, at the time of the event. And of course, those questions are still up in the air. So there are some incredibly severe potential consequences for both uh, Lori and Charles, including the death penalty. So currently, Chad and Lori's cases are joined together, meaning that barring some unforeseen circumstances, which we'll talk about in a little bit, they are going to be tried together. Um, So that's the legal update. Now, let's talk about the recent mental health issues that have come up. From a forensic psychologist, I've already mentioned that's the most significant significant thing that's happened recently, um, and it <laughs> happened almost on the same day that these murder charges and all these felony charges were handed down. And I think because of that, there's been a lot of outrage and a lot of suspicion about this. So around the same time period, Lori was declared incompetent to stand trial. And we'll talk about what that means. There was a lot of outrage. And even some of her family members came out and talked about how they thought that Lori was gaming the system, that she was faking it, that she was going to try to use this to get out of the charges against her. There was a lot of speculation, and there still is, about whether this was a ploy to essentially be tried separately from Charles Daybell. Um, I mentioned that two of them are currently co-conspirators. And some people think that Lori might be better off severing her case from Chad's and essentially throwing Chad under the bus, although there hasn't been any indication to date that she's planning to do that. Now, this outrage that I've read about all over YouTube and the internet and different um, social media forums is completely understandable and that these murder charges have been so long in coming. And now it seems like there's going to be even more of a delay, which there is. Um, But I think some of the outrage that a lot of people are feeling is due to some confusion about what it means to be incompetent to stand trial, both from a mental health standpoint and how it might impact the legal process. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to be found incompetent to stand trial or unfit to proceed. These two terms are often used interchangeably and they can be used one way in one state and one way in another state. So the basic idea of competency to stand trial basically came about from the concern and the belief that defendants deserve a fair and just defense, which I think all of us would agree about. And part of that fair and just defense is making sure the person being charged, the person being tried, understands what is going on at the time and can actively participate Um, in helping his or her legal counsel. And that can mean very basic things like, does the defendant understand what a judge is? Does does the person understand that that her attorney is her advocate? Does she understand what she's being charged with, what the options are in terms of her pleas? Does she know that she can call witnesses? Does she know that she can choose or not choose to testify in her own defense? Now, if these seem like just basic facts that anybody would know, you are correct. In other words, almost all adults are familiar with our judicial system. And if they don't understand how it works, so maybe they were raised in one country and they came over here and came from a very different judicial system, 
all it would take would be to educate them. This is how our system works. So if we're evaluating a defendant who for some reason doesn't even doesn't understand the judicial system, education is really part of the assessment process. So if I'm evaluating somebody for competency to stand trial and this person gives an incorrect answer, I'm going to write down what that defendant says, but I'm also going to say, well, not really. This is how it really is. Because I want to see if education is going to help that person understand better. And if it does, then just working to educate that defendant, maybe using simpler words, maybe giving extra time, maybe explaining again the, how, how the system works, this might be enough to restore this person to competency. So this part of the assessment process under is really assessing does the defendant understand the factual part of the judicial system does the person understand the roles everybody plays all the examples i just gave and typically this is not typically really an issue um, the only time this factual understanding becomes an issue is when somebody is either um, has serious intellectual deficits and there's a question of whether this person has the capacity to understand, or you might have somebody who has had a serious head injury and now they have some kind of organic brain damage and they have trouble understanding these kinds of things. Now, obviously, this has nothing to do with the case of Lori Vallow, but competency to proceed doesn't just involve a basic understanding of the facts and the ins and outs of the court process. It also involves what we call a rational understanding. And this means the person is able to make decisions um, about what is best for him or her, as opposed to, for example, decisions based on a severe mental illness or delusional beliefs. So let me give you an example. So for example, let's say you have a third year law student who clearly understands and knows her way around a courtroom, but she has a psychotic break. She kind of loses touch with reality and she starts believing, for example, that certain people only she can identify by these special messages that she's receiving are carrying bombs around in their purses or briefcases. And they're planning to overthrow the U.S. government. So one day she is on an elevator and a woman gets on who our law student thinks is part of this bomb conspiracy. Now, this person, our law student, our fictitious law student is a patriot. She's somebody who thinks of herself as caring about other other people. And so out of the mistaken, but very, you know, very genuinely believed um, attempt to protect other people, when the elevator door opens, our law student grabs this woman's purse throws it down the hall and proceeds to assault the owner. At the same time, she's interrogating her. Who are you working for? What are you doing here? What are you planning to do to this building, et cetera, et cetera. And this poor victim, of course, has nothing to do with anything. But our law clerk genuinely believes this is going on. And she ends up breaking the victim's nose and causing some pretty serious injuries. Now, the law student, of course, is arrested and she's charged with assault. When her attorney comes to meet with her, our law clerk tells her the entire story, including what she truly believes is her heroic effort to save an entire building and the people in it from being destroyed. The attorney, concerned about her mental health, asks a psychiatrist to evaluate her. Now, the psychiatrist evaluates this woman and believes that this law clerk is, is having some serious mental health issues, that she's delusional, and that she is suffering from a mental health disorder, and she recommends medication. 
the law clerk though, doesn't believe there's anything wrong with her thinking and she refuses her medication. And the, the attorney tries to work around his client's mental state. And she appears to understand what is going on in terms of the legal process. She understands what the judge is. She understands what her attorney is trying to help her with. So he thinks she is mentally ill, but not incompetent to proceed, which is often the case. Even people with a serious mental illness oftentimes understand the legal process. However, on the day before a hearing, the attorney comes in to see the law student and happens to bring a different briefcase than the usual one. Now, there's a simple explanation for this switch of briefcases. The clasp on her old one broke, and given the fact that this was an old one anyway, she decided to splurge on a new one. But this simple event took on a whole new meaning for our law student client, who now hears a voice telling her that her attorney is clearly part of this conspiracy and that she is just pretending to help her when in reality, she's plotting to put her away for the rest of her life because she is a danger. The law clerk is a danger to this kind of global conspiracy. So now what does she do? She refuses to communicate with her attorney at all. And when the public defender attempts to discuss an incredibly favorable plea deal for this law clerk. The, the public defender says, look, we're going to transfer your case to a mental health court. We're going to focus on treatment. Um, this is your first time offense. You have no criminal history. Uh, this is a great deal for you. The law clerk says, no way. I know all about this special court where they take you and you are never heard from again. And she insists that she is going to trial. She's going to take the stand because it will give her a chance to publicly blow the lid off the secret network that she is fighting. She says she is willing to sacrifice herself for the greater good. Now, at this point, what does her attorney do? Clearly, this law student is intelligent. She understands the legal process, but it's also clear that her decisions are being driven by her psychiatric symptoms. Yes, she factually understands the legal process, but is she able to rationally make decisions and participate in her own defense? Well, hopefully at this point, her attorney would go to the judge and ask for an incompetency assessment to be performed on her client. And if this evaluation took place and she was found competent, the legal process would just go marching on. If she's found incompetent to stand trial, which I think in this case she probably would be, she would be committed for what we, what we call restorative treatment. Now, the main goal of this restorative treatment is not to let the client off the hook. It's to get the individual back to a place where they can be held accountable for their actions. So they're stable, they don't become worse, and they can participate in their defense to you know, make the decisions that are best for them. Now, our fictitious law clerk that I just told you about obviously has nothing to do with Lori Vallow. But let's talk about this whole issue of incompetency to stand trial, and then we'll talk about it as it relates to this particular case. First of all, it is not uncommon for a defense attorney to question his or her client's competency 
It happens in about 8 to 15% of criminal cases. There are about 160,000 competency evaluations performed every year. It is the most common type of forensic evaluation. And out of all those competency evaluations, between 20 and 30% of evaluated defendants are eventually found incompetent to stand trial. So when we look at Lori and we look at her attorney, it's important to keep in mind, I think, a couple of things. One is it's in the best interest of the defense attorney to have his or her client assessed if there is any hint that he or she may be incompetent is part of providing the best defense for your client. It's also important to note that it is often in the best interest of the judge to be very conservative and grant a competency evaluation. If the defense attorney asks for one, no judge wants a case to be overturned on appeal because the defendant's mental state was in question and the defense was not allowed to have his or her client evaluated. So that's kind of a backdrop about incompetency to stand trial and why those kinds of questions might arise. So is Lori incompetent to stand trial? Well, there's no drum roll here because I can't answer that question as I've never evaluated her and nor can I really offer an opinion on the quality of of the assessment done by the licensed psychologist who evaluated her since I haven't seen it. Now, a couple of scenarios are possible, and we can talk about what is likely. It's possible that Lori's mental state has decompensated over time. I can tell you, I have seen people who were competent when they were arrested get worse as they spend time in jail, and they begin to kind of grapple with the long-term implications of what they've done. Um, It's also important to note that the timing of the murder charges and the incompetency ruling that occurred within a day or two of each other seemed incredibly suspicious, and that led to a lot of skepticism and a lot of cynicism, but it's it's come out recently that the incompetency evaluation was actually ordered on March 8th of this year, and that was weeks before the grand jury handed down the murder indictment. So the timing, although certainly raised a lot of eyebrows and and questions, um, may be coincidental. Now, let's talk about the elephant in the room here, though. Could Lori Vallow Daybell be faking? And of course, the answer is yes, she could. You know, anyone who has followed this case has seen body cam footage that's of uh, Lori lying to police when they, when they did a welfare check on JJ in September of 2019. They've seen her acting calm as a cucumber after her husband had just been shot to death. I think there is little question that Lori could decide to fake incompetency and could perhaps fool a licensed psychologist. You know, we don't know how this evaluation was conducted. We don't know if psychological testing was used. Uh, We don't know if the evaluator had access to jail records or information from her attorney and so forth, police reports. You know, one of the things I used to do when I worked inside of a prison was I would go around and talk to the custody officers. If I'm evaluating somebody's mental state because These are the individuals who saw this person every day. It is not hard to fake, um, to fake it when you're being evaluated for an hour or two, but it is really hard to fake serious mental illness every day, 24 hours a day. So hopefully she has, or he or she, the, the psychologist has all that information, but we don't know yet. You know, malingering, which is the psychological term for faking it um, in the correctional system is common. 
Um, there was one study I read that had 879 participants and 17.5% of those found incompetent to stand trial and therefore sent off to a state hospital rather than a prison were later identified to be faking their symptoms. So of course, it makes sense that individuals would try to fake it sometimes because there's so much at stake. It's also interesting to me that the prosecution is challenging the opinion of this expert, which means a couple of things. He'll have a chance to cross-examine the psychologist and his or her opinion, and he'll also have a chance to get a second expert to evaluate her. And if that opinion is different, the judge will hold a hearing and consider both reports and basically decide who, which expert he believes is the most credible based on the quality of the report and the facts that were considered. I think this is interesting because I don't know, I don't have any statistics on how often the opposing sides challenge an incompetency ruling. But in my experience as somebody who's done these evaluations, it seems to be pretty rare. I couldn't even think of a case I've been a part of where the other attorney challenged my report and wanted a second opinion. Now, I'd like to think that was because I'm such a fabulous evaluator, but I think it's also because the bar is pretty low in terms of being found competent. You really have to be impaired to be found incompetent. So it's usually pretty obvious when somebody is not competent and both sides agree. And the other part of it, as I mentioned earlier, is it basically just delays the legal process. It doesn't stop it or change it in any way. Now, one of the things that's interesting, I think, to look at is, well, are there any things that, that people or any variables that people who are found incompetent to stand trial have in common? And there are. And Lori Vallow doesn't seem to have very many of them. So in 2011, for example, there was um, a meta-analysis looking at 68 different studies from 1967 to 2008, so over a long period of time, to determine what variables most defendants who are found incompetent have in common. And these are some of them. Um, most of them had, had previously been diagnosed with a severe mental illness, most commonly schizophrenia. The vast majority had a history of multiple psychiatric hospitalizations before they were found incompetent. Most were unemployed, most were unmarried. So in other words, what you tend to see in individuals who are found incompetent to stand trial are number one, a history of a clear psychiatric diagnosis with again, multiple hospitalizations and also what I call functional impairments in relationships and in occupational history. So these are not individuals who were functional really before they got in trouble with the law. They were individuals who were having difficulty in multiple areas of their life, oftentimes because they had a severe mental illness that was not being treated, which is a very important point to remember. Now, there are a lot of people in Lori Vallow Daybell's life who've talked about her strange beliefs, um, her making threats about her kind of having these delusions or whatever. But one thing I haven't seen is evidence of functional impairment. The people who were closest to Lori pretty much seem to agree that even as her beliefs became more extreme, she was, you know, cooking, she was picking up JJ from school, she was going to the temple, and she was certainly carrying on a hot and heavy romance with Chad Daybell. And she was also engaging in a lot of purposeful deception. You know, it's also telling, I think, that some of the people that, are, that were closest to Lori, like her son, Colby Ryan, have expressed a lot of anger over this incompetency finding. 
and clearly you know, appear to think that she is manipulating the judicial system in her favor. So I think at this point, we'll have to wait and see what happens. The prosecution will cross-examine the psychologist who rendered the opinion that she was incompetent. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll have a chance to have a second expert evaluate her and offer another opinion. And the judge will be the one who will ultimately decide whether or not the legal proceedings will proceed or continue, or whether a time out will be taken uh, while Lori Valadable gets, again, this restorative treatment. I think one of the most frustrating aspects for me personally of this recent ruling has been kind of how exaggerated the likely consequences have sometimes been portrayed. So shortly after this was announced, I was watching a media interview and the announcer was saying things like, you know, when or if Lori ever goes to trial, as if it were likely to be years before anything happened or as if it would be in permanent limbo. Now, here is the reality of what is likely to happen. If Lori is found incompetent to stand trial, she will either be sent to a forensic psychiatric hospital or some other treatment facility, and she will receive restorative treatment. From a practical standpoint, this typically means, as I mentioned earlier, education, medication, or both. And a lot of times this means medication that targets psychotic symptoms. If she refuses to take this medication, she says, she says there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine, it is very possible that she would eventually be involuntarily medicated. If her treatment team thought that medication was necessary to restore her competency, then this might happen. Now, the first order in Idaho would be for 90 days. So she would be remanded for 90 days. And if she wasn't restored to competency in that time period, she could be committed for 180 days. It is very rare for a defendant to stay longer than that. In fact, I read recently that the average stay for an incompetent defendant in Idaho is around 35 days. So she will be continually assessed. And as soon as she had found competent, legal proceedings will be resumed. So yes, in theory, it is possible for someone to be permanently incompetent. But again, that is incredibly rare. And it typically involves somebody who has either a permanent intellectual disability. In other words, they're not going to get smarter. They're not going to get undisabled. Um, or they remain psychotic after trials of numerous psychotropic medications. And of course, neither of these scenarios apply at all to Lori Vallow. So I think the bottom line is that while the wheels of justice are turning very slowly in this case, there is no reason for us to believe that they won't start turning again for Lori Vallow-Debo. So keep the faith, continue to support victims and their families, and join us next time as we unmask another murderer.